Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Hey there. We're going to experience the final week of Jesus' life and listen as he begins to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead and about his eventual return. So join me uh, this week. We are reading in the Daily Bible for the dates of November the 12th through the 18th, or that would be pages 1449 through 1477. Let me do a quick review. Last week, we read how that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, and the chief priests and the leaders then planned to arrest him. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and the crowds are hailing him as king, and this really worries the leadership there. Uh, We read how that he wept over Jerusalem because they didn't recognize him, and um, he entered the temple. He cleansed it of the money changers and the merchandising, and then it says he returned back to Bethany. So I want us to get a picture here of the physical uh, setting what's going on in this final week of Jesus's life because uh, Bethany is over here in the east and to go from Bethany to Jerusalem you go up the Mount of Olives and come down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and then up to Jerusalem to the Temple Mount and this is really where Jesus spent his last week He went from Bethany. He spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives. He was going into Jerusalem. Then it said he would come back to the Mount of Olives. Sometimes he went all the way back to Bethany for the night. And so you have this going back and forward. Um, The Mount of Olives is uh, an amazing place where from there uh, he has what's called the Olivet Discourse, where we're going to be talking about his teachings of the disciples of the days that were to come. But what a magnificent view from the Mount of Olives overlooking that Temple Mount, the, the city of Jerusalem. And what a beautiful place for Jesus to look out over the city and to weep over it, to lament over it, to say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, for him to teach his disciples what's coming to the Temple Mount, to Jerusalem. It's from here on the Mount of Olives. And it's one day when they are leaving the temple, coming back up to the Mount of Olives, that the disciples say, look, Jesus, look, look at this magnificent building of the temple. And you see now why it's such a great view from the Mount of Olives. And they were so proud of the temple. And as we explained a couple of weeks ago, the the second temple was greatly enhanced and enlarged and completely like rebuilt by Herod the Great. He was an amazing builder, one of the top builders in the entire Roman Empire. This was the largest temple complex in the world. It uh, was magnificent. It was gold. It It was beautiful. And so you can see how the Jewish people would find great pride in this, Um, because their temple, the temple to the God of Israel, was such a magnificent uh, building. And Jesus says to them, not one stone will be left on another. 
and everyone will be thrown down. He was predicting the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and exile. He says, you'll be taken out into the nations. And uh, today, when you go with me to Jerusalem, we will show you right below the uh, Temple Mount are all these stones that they've uncovered, that they were literally thrown off of the top of the temple down into the um, plateau below. And, um, and you can see those stones today, just as Jesus said that it would happen. So the disciples then, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they ask them then, well, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And then this begins a very long discourse here in uh, Matthew 24, where Jesus is telling them what's going to happen to Jerusalem and the destruction. And then he segues into and what his return is going to be like. This is what they asked him. But when you're reading here, you have to understand they asked him two questions. When will this happen, the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of your coming? And so maybe they thought it would all be at the same time, but I don't. I think they're literally asking him these two questions. So he answers the two questions. Um, some people read this as all about the Roman destruction and has nothing to do with Jesus' second return. I think that's, I don't know how they get that. And other people read it and they think that it's all going to happen in the future. But I really think that part of it did already happen under the Roman Empire. And part of it clearly has not happened and is going to happen at Jesus's return. And we can sort of see the break um, in this when he begins to describe his coming as lightning. Uh, when I'm reading through this whole thing, I see that point is when he segues away from the Roman destruction because then he's going to say, but this is what it's going to be like when, when the Son of Man returns. It's going to be like lightning, you know, across the, the sky. And from then on, he's talking about future events when he returns. There's an interesting verse, uh, verse 30. This is Matthew 24, 30, where he says this. Then all peoples of earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. I want to uh, point out here the word peoples of the earth. That's the way the NIV translated it as peoples of the earth. But literally, it is the tribes or the peoples of the land. The word for land uh, is sometimes translated earth, but there's a few times they do that that it really, I don't think it's correct. I think they're saying that all the people of the land, the land of Israel, that all the tribes of the land will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That's exactly what Zechariah said, that they would mourn um, as for an only son when they see the one whom they have pierced. And then um, in Revelation 1, Verse 7, it confirms what I'm saying, and it says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth or tribes of the land will mourn because of him. So shall it be. 
Amen. So why would all the peoples of the earth mourn when they see Jesus returning in the clouds? I really think it's talking about the peoples of the land of Israel. Those who pierced him, they're going to mourn, just as Zechariah said. Going down a few verses, verse 34 is another hard to understand verse because of the translation. And it says this, This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, we read that and it sounds like, whoa, Jesus is saying that that generation of people would not pass away. So all of this must going to be happening in their lifetime. But that's not necessarily what the word generation means. It is the word gensa, and it's been translated as generation, but it, it can also be translated as people group. So I believe when you take this in context, clearly he wasn't saying this generation because that didn't happen, right? Um, but when you translate it as this people will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened means within context, God always promised that the people of Israel would remain. And so I just want to remind you, Isaiah 66, verse 22, it says this, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. So God had promised this people will endure. This people will be my people, my nation forever. And so Jesus is affirming that context. This people will not pass away. In other words, all this destruction, all these things that are going to happen, but your future is secure because God had always promised the survival of the Jewish people, that they would remain uh, before him. So, um, but he tells them that no one knows the timing of this except the Father. And then he goes into parables about the importance of watchfulness and the importance of faithfulness. Of course, if we're going to go through 2,000 years of history awaiting his return, it takes watchfulness and it takes faithfulness. And so that was his lesson. Moving on then into Matthew 25 is another astounding um, part of Jesus's instruction to his disciples. And I want to take a minute here. So in Matthew 25, Jesus is describing his return. But here he describes his return as the king who will judge the nations. Now, Jesus is always the uh, son of David who will take up the throne of David, uh, whether it's his first coming or his second coming. But clearly in his second coming, he is coming as the king and he's going to judge the nations. And this is a bit of a shift for the disciples because they've seen him now as the, the great teacher, the son of God, the, uh, the suffering servant. They haven't seen him in his glory as king on the throne. So here he's describing to them how that his, his coming is going to be in that way. And, um, and so this is what he says, beginning with verse 31. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he repeats, For I was hungry and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing. And he repeats it all. So I want to go back. What have we read here? That when Jesus comes to earth in his glory and all the angels with him, he will take up his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. Where is this going to happen? Is he coming to heaven? No, he's coming to earth. And it says he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then he's going to bless the sheep and with the kingdom. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then they're going to say, but how? When did we do all these things? And he says, because you did it to the least of my brothers and sisters. Who are Jesus's brothers and sisters? They are the Jewish people. Can we take this verse and expand it to include the church? Spiritually, yes, because we also are his brothers and sisters. We are part of the body of Christ. But we should never take away the original context. When Jesus said these words, his brothers and sisters were the Jewish people. And that is in keeping with the Hebrew prophets, uh, Zechariah and Joel, who said that the nations will be judged according to their treatment of his people, Israel. This is what Jesus is reinforcing here. So Jesus is coming to earth as king to take up the throne of David in Jerusalem on earth. And he's going to judge the nations based on their treatment of the Jewish people. I believe also those nations that persecuted the church. We have had more martyrs in recent years and throughout history. Those nations are going to pay a price for that. They will. And heaven uh, has a special place for the martyrs. 
Now, in Luke 21, it says that each day Jesus was teaching in the temple, and each evening he would go back out to the Mount of Olives, and the people came early in the morning to hear him. Then it goes on and it says, but still they would not believe in him. Yet at the same time, many amongst the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly. So this seems to contradict itself, and it seems to contradict what we read last week, where many believed in him. So I think that we need to read uh, this week's passage there in Luke 21. We need to read it within context of what we read last week and all those scriptures I quoted last week. Yes, many believed in Jesus. Yes, many did not believe in Jesus. Yes, the leadership sought to arrest him and to kill him. But even some of the leaders secretly believed in him. So yes, yes, it's all true. All right, so now let's uh, talk a little bit more about Passover. So it's time to prepare for the Passover meal. And Jesus sends the disciples into the city and tells them to look for a man carrying a water jar and that they're then to follow him back and to ask to speak to the master of the house. And that that's how they're going to find the upper room that will be prepared for them to uh, have the Passover. I go into much more detail about this in the 3D Jesus episode 6, if you'd like to listen to that. I'm just going to quickly reference it now as we move on. But why would a man be carrying a water jar? Because that was the job of the women. The women went down to the pool of Siloam and they got the water and to other sources of water. It was the women's job. So more than likely, Jesus is describing a man that's part of the Essene movement because the Essenes held celibacy in very high regard. And um, that's why I'm suspicious that um, it's possible Bethany was an Essene community, um, and it's possible that Lazarus and his two sisters were Essenes. That's why they weren't married. But that's all just conjecture. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, but we do know that in Jerusalem there was the, the Essene gate, and there was a section of Jerusalem for the Essenes, and they were a very holy people, very observant, but they were anti-temple. They wouldn't have anything to do with the temple and the priesthood there. And there was um, a community down at the Dead Sea, which were probably a former priest down at the Dead Sea, living a very, very austere lifestyle down in the desert, very holy, very righteous, and that's where they were writing the manuscripts and all. But there were Essenes throughout the whole nation of Israel. They were throughout the, the nation. Some of them were everyday people. Some were married. Um, but there were those that were celibates, uh, but not priests. Um, but nevertheless, the Essenes did have a section in Jerusalem, and they would have had their Passover two days earlier than the rest of the Jewish world because they had their own calendar. And at their Passover dinner, they did not have lamb because they did not in any way participate in the sacrifice of the lambs in the temple. And um, so the whole scenario here doesn't make a lot of sense why Jesus had Passover dinner too early for Passover. 
because Passover was Friday night. That was the dinner. The lambs were slain on Friday afternoon when Jesus was hanging on the cross and died. So why did he have Passover? Was it the night before or two nights earlier? I get into more detail in the 3D Jesus, but um, if he was on the Essene calendar and had an Essene Passover without lamb that night, then it makes perfect sense. Okay, so now um, moving on, um, we know about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And so I just wanted to raise a question here. Why did Judas betray Jesus? We're never told why. But um, in a way, it's almost as though, I mean, Jesus knew what was going to happen. And some people have a theory when they read Jesus passing the bread to Judas, uh, he's almost saying, go do what you need to do. Um, that's very, very interesting. What was Judas doing? And um, so it's possible that Judas had no intention of betraying Jesus to the point of crucifixion. And um, it is possible that he thought that by having them arrest Jesus, it was going to bring the whole thing to the surface that Jesus's Messiahship would be made known and that this would all be turned around and the movement would begin against Rome. Um, and what happened is it blew up in his face. And when he realized that Jesus wasn't going to instigate this revolt against Rome and he wasn't, this wasn't going to happen, that's when he said, what I've done is wrong, and I've betrayed innocent blood. And he throws the 30 shekels into the temple, and he goes, and he hangs himself. And um, so it's just interesting um, little tidbit there. Now, at the trial, another question I want to ask, because as you're reading through these stories, I'm not going to repeat all the stories, but when they have the trial of Jesus— who is this crowd that's crying out for Barabbas and crying out for Jesus to be crucified? We've just read how that there were thousands of Jewish people proclaiming Jesus as king. They were following him. They believed in him. They knew about the miracles. So, you know, I, I recently read an article. It really disturbed me because the writer who I don't think they're, you know, they're just a journalist. And they're writing this article and said the same Jewish people that were proclaiming him king on the triumphal entry now turned against him and were crying out for him to be crucified. And I don't think that's right. I don't think it was the same Jewish people. I think this crowd was part of the Sanhedrin, the priestly crowd. These were their people, whether they were paid to be there or whether they were forced to be there or whether they were there willingly, we don't know. But I have a feeling they were handpicked and they were only let in to enter if they were part of the priestly crowd because the priest did not want any kind of rebellion or revolt. They weren't going to let them in if they had a Galilean accent, if they'd been seen with Jesus, they were not going to let them in. And so um, I don't think that we can um, make this accusation that I read uh, in that disturbing article. 
So now in uh, John 17, we have a beautiful section here where uh, Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. He knows that his time is coming to an end, and he prays for them, and he prays for all those who followed him and believed in him, and then he prayed for you and me. Yes, he prayed for all those who will come to believe through the disciples. And that's you and me, even though we don't know the disciples personally, what they started and what they passed on, you and I have come to know the Lord because of it. And so Jesus prayed for us, and he prayed that we would know him and that we would be in unity. And he said that um, the last verse, he says that the world does not know you. And I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So he says here, the world does not know you, Lord, but I have made you known to them. This was Jesus's mission. It was to make the Father known to the Jewish people, and some rejected it. Some were blinded and hardened. Others believed, and here he prays for them, that they would have the love that he has known of the Father, and that one day he himself will be in them. Now, how will that happen? But by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon his believers. And so then we move into the story of Jesus's crucifixion, and quite prophetically, over his head is the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Of course, he dies under that sign. It's all over. Uh, his side is pierced. His blood is spilt out for the sins of the world. And then he is buried in a tomb that is sealed and has a Roman guard outside. Can you imagine if you had been one of his followers if you had been one of the thousands, or if you'd been one of the disciples, or if you'd been his, one of his brothers, or, or Mary his mother, and you had such high hopes, it looks like it is all over. And this sarcastic sign over his head, King of the Jews, it was nothing but a ruse. But how prophetic that sign is, that one day, he is returning, and he's going to take up that throne in the sight of everyone. And those who pierced him are going to mourn. He's going to reveal himself to them at that point. I want to have one closing point here. Is that God used the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders that rejected Jesus, that turned him over to the Romans to be crucified, God used them and their unbelief to bring up this sacrifice, this atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we have blamed them for it ever since. Yes, it's true that the Romans um, were the ones to crucify him. It's true. Jesus had the power to lay down his life or pick it up again. He could have called 10,000 angels. It's true, he died for our sin. There's lots of blame to go around, but 
the Jewish people are the ones that called for his crucifixion and handed him over to die. And we have blamed them for it ever since. But I want to end with the words of Jesus. He prayed for them from the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So with that, I want to remind you of our resources this week. We're going to link to them in today's show notes. The 3D Jesus episode 6 is going to go into more detail than I was able to today on some of this story. And then we have the DVDs for sale in our store, Written in Stone, Jesus of Nazareth, and Written in Stone, The Secrets of the Temple, where you can see all these sites and just visualize these events in the life of Jesus. Okay, enjoy your reading this week. I will see you back here next week. And until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.